0: The first ruler of the area is Herod, who's given kingship. And Herod is half Jewish, only half. Herod was um, an Idumean, which is a, a, a province to the um, sort of the north and to the east of Jerusalem. And he was converted by the sword. Um, so his family didn't want to be Jewish, but was told, convert or die or leave. Right? So Herod was really only considered half Jewish. Jewish, And he did a lot of really un-Jewish things, it's important to know. We remember him now as the builder. And what he had done during his lifetime is, is take the temple, which was a tiny little thing. I mean, a building that was 35 to 40 feet tall. So that's like two stories, right? And not even that wide, maybe 30 feet wide. How many feet deep? 40 feet deep. You could almost fit it in Chris Hall. I mean, just think about it. You could almost fit it in Chris Hall, the original temple. We usually think that thing was really big. It was not big at all. The reason those were some of the limits is because that was the natural length of timber, right? To make a laminated beam was not technologically possible when the first temple was built. So Herod took that tiny temple and made it ginormous. Um, Really, Herod took something. Small like this. Now, this is the temple where the priests enter, just to give you an idea. And this is a court where people could go in, right, who were men. And then outside would be a court where women and Gentiles could go. Okay, so you're just thinking about concentric boxes. And what Herod did was grossly, grossly enlarge the whole thing. So in the first temple, we're thinking that this Court, uh, that this court here is somewhat like a basketball court, including the bleachers, to give you a good idea. Now, that might seem big, but not for 20,000 people. So, what Herod did is he took this outer court and he made it the size of about three football fields. So, think about going from a basketball gym to three football fields. And that was the enlargement that he made. And many of you have heard of the Western Wall, right? That's called the Wailing Wall. You've seen pictures of Jewish people offering their prayers there. That's a retaining wall. It was not any part of this building. It was a retaining wall to hold up the football field. So it was backfilled with earth. Does that make sense? And then the temple was built way up on this ginormous platform that could be seen literally for miles. A lot of people consider the temple Herod built to be the eighth wonder of the ancient world. Some of the rocks weighed more than 400 tons and the way Herod built this was also quite, quite interesting architecturally. He, he, he didn't build it just flat. He built these, these vaulted ceilings and then backfilled between the vaults so the temple sat over vaults instead of solid ground. Does, it, does that make sense? Pilgrims that are going there Friday will still get to go into some of those vaults. They were later used as, as um, um, stables by crusaders. Uh, some people say they were used by stables for Solomon, although that's really iffy because Solomon didn't know how to ride horses. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a second. So so Herod makes this huge thing, and what you have to remember is that these that this temple platform is not just not just for religious use. That big, big, big court, he's really Herod's changed the scale to sort of create this diagram. So what would have happened here? The same thing that happened in a cathedral in medieval Europe. This is where all your commerce in the whole city was conducted, right? This is where your fairs were. This is where people bought and sold goods. This is where you had butchery going on. I mean, you're just thinking about a fairground. I mean, this is really what it was. And this was called the Court of the Gentiles. This wall right here and it was walled off, that would have separated Jewish people from Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile and you crossed here, you could be killed for that. Um, This wall separated men from women, and then this box right here represents the temple proper the Christ hall sized thing that was Herod likely made taller, and the only people that went in there were priests. And, of course, the most important room is the Holy of Holies, in which the high priest alone went once a year and sort of cleaned up a bit. That was about all, right? So, so that's sort of what's going on. And then what Rome does, because... Um, People keep having rebellions, and Rome's not interested in having a police force or a garrison. They'd rather not do that. They, they end up having to make one. They make this called the Antonio, this, this huge barrack military fortress right here on the corner. So you've got to think, if you're up on top of the Antonio, this is all flat. You've got really good range to deal with... Um, people down there in the courtyard and that ended up getting tested a whole bunch of times because what we know about Pilate is he either didn't know about Judaism or didn't care. One of the first things that he did was he brought in huge images of the emperor uh, well the past emperor Caesar Augustus right and Augustus really means the August one it's the declaration that he's a god. In antiquity a lot of times um, rulers would be elevated to godhood after they died. But here is a man saying, I'm a god while I'm still alive. And of course, when you conquer the whole known world, I guess people tend to validate that claim when you impose it on them. So that was the claim. And, and Pilate, being who he was, capricious, ignorant, both, in the middle of the night, snuck these huge images of the emperor in which, as you know, is anathema according to the Decalogue, to the ten words, you know, which we're going to say in church today, right? No graven images, no other gods before us. And here's an image of a human being who's also claiming to be a god, and the Jewish people protested. And Pilate didn't care until about 5,000 Jewish people got down here under the Antonio and said, go ahead and kill us and put their necks up. But until you move those images, we're not leaving. And they just sort of had a (laughs) sit-in. You can read about this in the writings of Josephus, right? And so ultimately, Pilate loses that one. He tries again by putting a Roman eagle on top of this gate right here, which once again is a symbol of you'll read about this later in the book, uh, naughty, right? So this is, th- th- this is tense. And of course, when you come to Passover, which is the week we're talking about, it's not just the normal number of residents. There could have been upwards of 50,000 people. So to put that in mind, right, that's a huge potential riot or military force that's now come from all over the world. And, and hence, that's why there's a procession from Pilate. He didn't want to be there that week, but this is sort of like rolling out tanks. <laughs> right to remind the local people what you have got so you want to think about this procession of pilot that's happening on this first day on sunday as being completely clothed in purple and in the insignias of the legion this is where people would have done like they, like you'd see at a nuremberg rally right this would have been roman troops doing their equivalent of goose stepping if if that makes sense as a as a power show right And then there's the alternative of Jesus, right? Who's riding not on a horse, but on a donkey. And this is really, really important because David is the one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And um, a donkey is a symbol of peace because has anybody been around a donkey before? Anybody ever tried to work with a donkey? They're relatively ordinary animals, you know, and a mule, a mule gets the worst part of the donkey combined with the worst part of the horse, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, so stubborn as a mule as you get. Well, a donkey, it turns out, is not actually very high up off the ground, and it's not particularly fast. So if you were to use a donkey in, in battle, you have none of the advantages of a horse, one, those being, you're elevated off the ground, the horse is fast, the horse is large, and just turning the horse can knock people over without hurting your horse, and you lose all the mobility of a foot soldier. So, so a donkey would be sort of like having a smart car that you drive, <laughs> <laughs> that you drive in the Blitzkrieg, right? Does, does this make sense? <laughs> Massive acceleration, right? Well, it turns out the reason David rode a donkey into Jerusalem after they'd conquered it, and by the way, it took the Israelite people about 300 years to take the city of Jerusalem because it had walls. It's important to remember, the people of ancient Israel were technologically backward. They were in the Iron Age using bronze age technology, and we think bronze, oh yeah, like they had bronze weapons. No, 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 the, the, the kings and the petty nobility had bronze weapons, everybody else had, had sticks with like a nail sticking out, right? I mean, that was their, their fierce bronze weapon, only a little better from the Stone Age because it had a nail, right? That, that, that was what, how that worked, because bronze, of course, is, a non, is non-abundant. It's very difficult to find it compared to iron, which is all over the place, right? So when David comes in, the reason he rides a donkey is because they didn't know how to ride horses. People have understood for a long time that a horse can pull a cart, like a chariot. But actually the bit and the bridle, which are really important for steering the horse and the saddle, weren't really invented until about 900 BCE. And we don't think the Israelite people adopted them until... Golly, 600? This is important to know because we take it for granted that people rode horses. Smart people rode horses. Israelite people didn't because they didn't know how. So how did David sit on the donkey? Well, you can ride, you can straddle a donkey or you can sit it sideways. But you see, think about the sign of David. He rides a donkey. The only time you can ride a donkey in the town is when you have completely subdued it. Otherwise, it would be complete foolishness, okay? Jesus riding a donkey, in some ways, I don't know that it's a sign of having subdued the town as much as it is a statement about the uselessness of the donkey in any military campaign. And that would not have been lost on somebody. Again, Look, you've got your tank, I've got my smart card, so there, right? I mean, this is just not not an impressive sign. In fact, the authors say it's an intentional calculated countersign, right? Why did they use palms? Because that's what they had. If they were in Texas, they'd probably use things like oak branches or mesquite chips. That's just what they had, right? What What did the Roman procession have? A red carpet or something like that. flowers being thrown out in procession of the gods' standards, right? Um, Again, you ever been to a wedding where people threw pine needles down in front of the bride? That's the equivalent, right? Because that's what's abundant, you know? People just grab what they could find, right? Instead of importing and planning, and and then there's the counter-procession. It's a really interesting thing to contrast, right? The beginning of the week, and actually because the authors go to great pains to talk about, instead of, uh, well, the earliest Christians, of course, were known as the way, and to think about the way of Jesus compared to the way of Pilate, well, there's really, there's really a lot to that, right? The way in which he comes. A um, long time ago, I was at uh, this church, and, and for Father's Day, I think, they put on this Father's Day event, and they, 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 they brought out this Montana cowboy, and they brought down a wild horse. This is this interesting thing about the way of the Lord. Wild horse, never been ridden, right? And so the, the, the cowboy was going to spend as long as it took publicly talking to people who were gathered, having like a barbecue. It was a Baptist church. So there wasn't any beer, of course. And, and, and uh, there they were, and, and he was going to take as long as it could, took until he could ride that horse, a horse that had never been ridden, you know? It was really interesting to hear that he talked a lot about um, how in the Western way, usually we think of breaking horses, right, which is you confront the horse with the idea that their will is inferior to yours over and over and over again, and then you end up riding them. And, and instead, what he did was sort of actually the Native American way, right, which is that he approached the horse, they established a relationship, this sort of business. And, and for a Baptist church, it was really interesting, because the message was great. It was really like, this is how God approaches us, not as someone to dominate and subjugate our wills, right? but as someone who's trustworthy so that when you ride together, you truly are riding together instead of you riding the horse. Um, And I remember that image because it was really nice. And in some ways, I think the authors are trying to lay that out for us in the processions, that there's the way of domination and strength and flexing. And then there's this this really counter symbol right, of having earned the trust and having earned um, the welcome that you can come in riding something off like a donkey. I, I'm afraid I just wasted a lot of your time, but, but anyway, that's there's there's some of the symbolism there. Okay. Um, they talk a little bit more about the temple, and and there's some some details that are really really important. So you know we talked about enlarging the temple, and uh, it's really helpful to know I think that the temple becomes. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously the number one religious edifice. And, and if you are Jewish, essentially most of your religious life evolves around that temple. See, we, we have this false thinking that that in general religious people have always been interested in the religious life that we're in some ways acquainted with. You go and you sing songs and you say prayers, and then you try to integrate the Bible or whatever weird thing the priest said, you know, into your daily life and it informs your ethics. That's completely new. Nobody cared about ethics in daily life. Nobody. People were interested in offering the right kinds of sacrifices and maintaining the right kind of purity. So go back and read the Hebrew Bible, the first five books, right? And what you'll find is to be Jewish, you need to make sure you celebrate the festivals of Passover and Sukkot and Yom Kippur, You need to make sure you don't eat certain foods like rock badgers, um, which are really called hyraxes, and you can't eat fruit bats, but you can eat things like sheep and goats. And make sure that you wash yourselves and stay outside of camp when you touch dirty, gross things like dead things and women. And that was religious life for people. That was it. Until it started to change when people lost the first temple. And that happened in the year... 587, when the Babylonians came and burned it to the ground. Right? They were carried away into exile and they said, geez, our religious life is hinged around a building that we don't have anymore. What do we do? Do we quit? And there was a decision, no, that studying this stuff was as good as doing it. And this was sort of the birth of, of, of really, really early kind of rabbinic Judaism. Of course, that got put on pause because they came back in 540 and built another temple, and it was a sad one. It was so sad uh, that when, after building it, they started crying because they knew it was, they built a hut. I mean, that was it. They built a the hut. Now, Herod is the one who turned the hut into a wonder. I mean, that's important to know. They, were, they kept that hut for a long time. Well, because that idea had started, and because other people came around, and, and particularly in 167, there was a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes who came and sort of said, you can't worship in the hut you can't read those scrolls. If I find a scroll on you, I'll burn it with you. You can't circumcise your children. If you do, I'll kill them, and the mother will wear them around the neck before, for a day before I burn them alive. And that, that hut where you've been doing that stuff in, I'm going to convert that to a sanctuary for Zeus. And, and, and Antiochus did that by slaughtering a pig, offering it to Zeus in the hut, and then taking the pig blood and dousing the holy vessels in it. All right, So his, his number one goal was to defile the temple, which he did. Well, you think about it, when the temple's defiled and that's your religious life, what do you do? Well, you can take it back, which ultimately happened, but in the meantime, what does it mean to live a religious life? Because if that's all it's about and it's gone, then your religion's gone. And this is when Judaism starts to reinvent itself. And this is when there starts to become a class of people that we now know about. And we don't like them, of course, because Jesus has a lot to say about them. But hithertofore, the people who deal with the hut are called the Sadducees. And what do you know? They're, they're, um, they're, the, they're the aristocrats. They're the priest kings. And literally in 164, they become both the king and the high priest, which was never supposed to happen. Never. These are the Maccabees, who later turns into people like um, Horkinus is the name of the first person. His name's John, oddly enough. He's a Jewish guy with the name of John, but you you shouldn't trust that guy, Um, because John's a Greek name. John Horkinus is the first king of the Jews, who's also a priest. And so what he does, right, is he brings church and state into one bundle, and he's not related to the first high priest, who's called Zadok. Zadok is the high priest under David. Who his, his descendants, the Zadokites, end up becoming the high priest. And so, you know, there's classes of priests. There's the Levites, right? The Levites are the local people who butcher your animals. And then there's the descendants of Aaron, and ultimately that gets switched to Zadok. And those are the people who hang out in the temple, okay? John um, Horkinus was not a Zadokite, so he took the high priesthood away from the tradition that had been going for 800 years. And you'll notice in the book that you talk about the temple under Herod and the temple under Rome. They switched high priests at will, right? They switched high priests at will. They didn't like how it was going. The high priest wasn't supporting them politically, frankly. Then they would change them. And one of the ways they would change high priests, interesting to know, is um, they would disfigure them because a high priest couldn't have any kind of star, scar or blemish. So literally, you can read that Horkinus, later in his life, his, um, his nephew bites his earlobe off, um, because from that moment on, he can't, he can't be the high priest. The understanding was, if he went into the Holy of Holies with his earlobe gone, God would strike him dead. And, and there are stories we hear from some of the writings, that on Yom Kippur, the one day that the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, The priest had a rope attached to their ankle with bells on it so that if the bells stopped ringing, the people outside knew that that God had struck the priest dead and they should pull the corpse out. (laughs) Did it actually happen? Of course, we don't know, but it's in our writings, right, that God was dissatisfied with these priests. It was a serious business. It wouldn't be like you would have, you know, some kind of scar and you would keep it a secret because your whole life was at stake doing that, you know. So, so this was serious business, and 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 the Sadducees then are the become really the religious elite, and they're divided among a couple families. And really, what you're thinking is this is like being a member of the nobility in the Middle Ages. Your your dad's a duke, your dad's a baron. Of course, there's earls as well, but 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 these are um, the. the the social and religious hierarchy among Jewish people, and Rome seizes those people like any good ruler does. If you want to to govern a people, you need earls and barons, right? So you just convert them to your side, and that's essentially what happens. The Zedekites had already been um, displaced internally, so now it's the Sadducees, and again, you're thinking this is a pool of petty petty nobles, right? Well, What about this other thing I was telling you about where... um, people started to think, geez, if we can't worship in the temple, what do we do? Well, well, that's really um, this group of people called the Pharisees. And again, in the Gospels, they sure get a lot of criticism, but they get a lot of criticism probably because they're people who might have listened to criticism. Now, if you've had a teenage child, you know that you waste a lot of time talking to people who don't care about what you have to say, (laughs) right? I mean, you spend a lot of time giving great, pithy lectures. In fact, I mean, I'm thinking about releasing a lecture series. If I just recorded these things, I, I, I mean, this is my best preaching I've ever given. I do it at home, you know? And, and I often say, like, I give myself four and a half stars on that one, so I expect to see some results. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any results. Okay, anyway, so, so there's that, right? Um, but, but, maybe, but maybe you talk to people who are willing to listen, because otherwise it'd be a waste of time. The Pharisees are people who who bought into the temple system right they did they didn't have any problem with the sacrifices but these are the people who said particularly in a time when you couldn't do it geez our religion's gone what do we do and and their answer was you study and the answer is studying about sacrifice starts to become figurative because if you can't literally kill an animal the question is then what does it mean What does it mean? And this is where they start to come up with these little laws called mitzvot, right? About keeping purity and about how do you keep the law and the intentions of the law, right? And these are people who um, actually have a very strict lifestyle. These are people who fast one day a week instead of one day a year. These are people who give 10% of everything they make instead of just 10% of their dill and their mint and their cumin, right? So they give 10% of their lettuce to the clergy, right? Right? These are people who who go over and above. These are also people who are really liberal and they start to believe in books having religious authority other than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the people who read the Psalms. In case you're wondering, Jesus was a Pharisee. We know that for sure because he goes around quoting these other books. If he were a Sadducee, he wouldn't know anything about those books. He wouldn't have read them. If he were, you know, a non-observant Jew, he wouldn't know anything about anything. So, so Jesus falls safely in the Pharisaic class, and it's all about how does religion inform my daily life in addition to my cultic life. And this is a relatively new thing, okay? This is the, 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 the strain that won out after the temple is destroyed, this one destroyed in 70 of our common era or AD, because again, there's no temple, what do we do? We study the Torah, and, and that phrase is Talmud Torah, right? The study of Torah. And, and these are people who get together still. You go to a synagogue and you can see this happen. Instead of just reading the Torah and hearing a sermon, you hear antithesis sermons side by side. Rabbi Gamaliel says this, but Rabbi Akiva says this, right? I mean, th- th- this is good. You've got points and counterpoints in the same sermon. In particular, you get a room of Jewish scholars together and they don't agree about anything. <laughs> We're just kind of neat, right? They agree to disagree regularly. <laughs> Those are those people. Those are those people, right? And uh, again, part of what's happening, particularly uh, when you think about this building, is how religion's already starting to to be here and also out here. When we think about this domination system, right, really these are the people that control it at the temple. And as John said, they really are in a double bind because what they've seen is that Rome will replace the high priest like that And They may not just replace you. They may cut off your earlobe, and they may cut off some of your fingers, or they may just kill you, right? Which would prevent you from going into the Holy of Holies as well, right? If you're dead, it's hard to do. So, there's a lot at stake here. And the people who are here, these elite people, one way we can say it is, look, they're just defending their privilege, you know? They just want to be rich. But another way to think compassionately and sympathetically is they really believe, they really believe in this place, and this system, and they're really afraid that Rome would take it away. And if Rome takes it away from them, that's bad for the world, because God needs to be worshipped this way. So it's really important, I think, that we give some sympathy to these people. It's not just that they're, that they're evil. It's that they're committed to this very closed way of thinking, and they're willing to preserve it at high cost. And that, I think, is a good way to hear some of the criticism that's happening even on Palm Sunday. Right? Are the costs outweighing the gain? Is God pleased with the price we're paying to maintain this thing? So, what were some of the costs? Well, the book tells you in that first chapter that everyone has to pay a temple tax, whether they're living at home or abroad, that amounts to, did you get that number? 20% of their income. 20% is going to the upgrade of the temple. Of course, that explains how Herod turned it from a hut into a wonder of the world because they were Jews all over the world, right? And you know, actually, that practice of sending money to the Holy Land continues to this day. There are Jewish people, and you can particularly read about this in 1947 during the Jewish War of Independence, right? There were rabbis there who all they did was study the Torah, and they did it on behalf of Jews throughout the world that weren't doing it. And when, when, you know, the Haganah uh, was like, hey, take up arms and fight, they were like, no. Why would we fight for this land? We're just here to study the Torah. And, and so there was like this really interesting piece between, frankly, secular Jews and religious Jews in the foundation of Israel. The religious Jews in general wouldn't fight. They had to have their arms twisted really, really heavily to do anything, including to let people be on the street on the Sabbath. They, they had injunctions against it. And of course, as you know, without that... There'd be no Israel. That was the whole thing about the Yom Kippur War, right? Hit, hit them on a high holy day when they can't fight back. Well, that was miscalculated, right? That was grossly miscalculated. It's sort of like, by the way, George Washington did this, you know, crossing the Delaware on Christmas. I'm what a scumbag, right? I mean, it's like fighting people on Christmas. It worked. Good job, George. You know, but but I mean, it's just sort of that's, that's the deal, right? Okay. So. 20% income is going. And then the authors also talk about the, death, the debt records. And, and you know from the Torah, this is really, really interesting, that land really can never, shouldn't ever really be taken away from a family because there's this really interesting understanding that in an in a, in agrarian economy, when you take somebody's land away, you really take away their freedom. I mean, you really, you've created slaves. And when you go back and read Leviticus, right, people's land can be confiscated but no more than 49 years, because in the 50th year, it all goes back to the to generational ownership, unless you chose to sell it. So what you need to think of, there weren't very many realtors, right? You wouldn't really want to sell the title to your land, because you knew every 50 years, you'd get it back. Now, what you could do is essentially lease it. You could give the temporary ownership over to someone for money, and the Bible warns you very, very cautiously, if it's the 49th year, don't not buy somebody's land because you know it's going back to them. If you intend to buy it, buy it so that they can survive this year and next year give it back, right? Because that's just long-term justice. We don't know if anybody ever did those laws. I just want you to know, we don't know if anybody ever did the year of Jubilee. But it is an interesting way to think about systemic poverty, becoming on a 50-year on a basis instead of a perpetual basis, right? It's really a policy of debt forgiveness, if you don't mind me saying. Like when you hear people who are crazy um, pop singers talk about forgiving the third world debt, it, it, it's biblical, right? Because otherwise, how are you ever going to pay it back? You can't even make the interest payment, right? So um, the records, obviously that's not even happening. The authors tell you the priests who shouldn't be holding land are acquiring it with the understanding is if I'm not living on the land then I'm fulfilling the commandment and, and, and of course in an agrarian economy the more land you own the more wealth you have, right, I mean holding money up next to land is, it's even hard to say which one's greater value in an agrarian economy, right that's why, you know if you know your medieval history uh, earls and barons were often paid in tracts of land instead of money because that was a guaranteed source of income, whereas money you only got one time, right? So when this law changes and when priests start to acquire land and when they're doing this 20% tax, where do you keep the documents that say who owes what to whom and which priest owns what land? Interestingly enough, they're kept right there. Which is an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That the, the place of cultic obligation is now also holding um, your economic obligation to a system that's going against cultic obligation. And the proof in the pudding, right, if you know anything about this, in 66 of the Common Era or AD, that's when there was a Jewish revolt, right? And the first thing uh, the the rebels did is they killed the high priest and they burned all the debt records, and they elected high priest a regular just bum off the street because they were tired of aristocrats and bureaucracy in their temple system. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? (laughs) That the popular rebellion was interested in popular leadership, not, I mean, really, it, it, it's pretty Marxian, right? They overthrew the bourgeoisie, those proletariat. <coughs> well, actually, in Marx, you know, the, um, the bourgeoisie overthrow the proletariat. It's in Lenin, who misread Marx, that you do it the other way around. Sorry. Okay. All right, so that's part of the domination system, right? Is that, is that you have to go there. It's the only place you can sacrifice. So just think about that. You have to sacrifice, and it's the only place you can really do it. And not only that, you can't really get in there unless you've paid your debts, and the debts are kept in there. So you've really got people kind of in a sling here, right? I mean, well, they have no choice but to pay up. So It becomes really interesting to think then, right, that Jesus doesn't necessarily hate the temple. He hates that the temples become the center of this greater evil, right? And what we realize is Jesus is going up to the temple himself to offer prayers and to learn and to offer sacrifices, right? He does it himself. But while he does it, he sees and strongly dislikes what's going on. I thought I heard somebody. It starts to make you wonder, right, in what ways is the church complicit in a domination system? Or is it? Yes, sir. and and you know we've I've said this for the last eighteen months you know we often think the Reformation was the biggest change in Christian history, and it wasn't The biggest change was Constantine adopting christianity giving giving Christians public buildings, vestments like we wear today come from the time of Constantine, not earlier right changed the way everything looked and functioned at least socially yeah, that's fair or started it i mean I mean really you know it doesn't totally happen until three eighty four What's that guy's name? I forget. Somebody in 384 is the one who makes Christian the official religion instead of tolerated and accepted along with everything else, right? Um, But I do think, I do think it's worth stopping here and thinking, because obviously I think our church reality, you know, churches don't hold debt cards. They don't, right? Not like this. And there's not a temple tax that's levied on everybody, not here. Of course, we know in the Middle Ages that happened, right? That was how the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, or the, just the church in general, was able to do, you know, what it did, make amazing buildings and pay people to be priests and go to monasteries. Priests and monasteries, by the way, are like Jews in Jerusalem who all they do is study the Torah. They do it on behalf of everybody else who can't do it, right? So we have been doing that a long time. It's still, if you live in Germany, now you can get an exemption. But you either pay your church tax to the Catholics or to the Lutherans right? And that's part of your state income tax is, is, is paying. You can now, I think, start to opt out, or if you're a Baptist, you can start to maybe channel some of your taxes there, but 10 years ago, you couldn't. You picked Catholic, and you, or you picked Lutheran, and if you're a Baptist, then you gave that out of your pocket, which is very different to do in Germany, because the state tax makes it so you don't have to do that, right? I mean, so, so in some ways, that reality gets repeated, but I, I, I think What the authors are really trying to get us to think about, though, is is not just Jesus is doing this political thing then, but the question is how do we follow Jesus on the way now, and are there ways in which we're complicit in dominating people's spiritual economic lives as a church? Does that make sense, what I'm sort of saying? Otherwise, we read something like this, or read the Bible, and we say, that was neat. (laughs) Glad I learned that. But the question is, what do we do with the acquisition of learning? Right? Does it inform our wisdom and our practice? I'm, I'm not expecting you to have an answer because I don't have an answer right now either. Except, right? Um, you know, there's there's this really, really a big deal about sacramentalism, right? And sacramentalism is like, how do we treat the sacraments? And of course, we know there's two big ones, the, the Eucharist and baptism, and then there's five others, including ordination and confirmation, etc. right? And, you know, in practice, and it's not like this, it's not like this, but in the spirit of this, sometimes sacraments can frankly <laughs> dominate people's lives. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, right? I mean, you know, the prayer book allows me to withhold communion from any one of you I want, Right? You can come to the rail, and I can say, "You notorious sinner!" No, (laughs) I can say that real loud. That's a rubric in the prayer book. I want to ask you: Do you know anybody that's done that before? Not by name, but have you ever been to a church and seen the priest withhold communion? I don't know that I've seen it in the epistle. You have. Right, that's still the reality in the Roman world, right? Still the reality. That's scary, isn't it? I mean, I just, I want to say that's scary. Because you think about then, right, particularly if you say that the sacrament is required for forgiveness of sins, and if you can't have it, that's a mortal sin, you kind of got people in a sling, don't you, right? That means if your marriage is really bad and abusive, you got to really think hard about whether you leave it course I've been places right where we say baptized Christians of all denominations are welcome at the rail you've heard that before I've heard Christians of all denominations are at the rail right and of course in some ways you get hey you didn't want people to take this in a silly manner but then the question is why don't you want that because isn't that between them and God instead of between you and them I mean I don't know I I, it's in some ways helpful to think through that right I do weddings and I just tell you, this is sort of in mind. I do weddings for people that aren't Christian. And they say, they say, we want to get married. And I say, why do you want to get married in the church? Because our parents would really like that. It would mean a lot to them. And I've always thought about a church wedding. And I say, look, here's my big criterion. You go through premarital counseling, and I think your relationship's going to work, right? If you do that, I'll marry you. Because uh, maybe this sounds really bad. Look, I'm sort of, I'm sort of confessing to you. Because people think of the church as being really difficult to get to bless them. I'm positive this is right, that people think the church will more often say no than yes. I've ended up doing a lot of weddings. I've done more weddings here at St. Thomas than I did in Coronado, and we were a wedding chapel down there. I think because people think I might say yes to them, you know, for a change. And I'm relatively happy with that. Because the truth is, they want the church to do it. For whatever reason, they want the church. They want that. So it seems like I should want to say yes to the church being in their lives instead of no. You know, there's this old thinking that you, when someone's going to get baptized, you make them go to eight sessions of baptismal instruction and fill out a workbook. Because that's your one chance to snag them, you know? Because they want the baptism and they'll jump through a hoop. Although, I wonder if you make them jump through hoops like that, if they'll ever go back to church again. Because they just wanted the baptism, you know? That's what they wanted. And, and golly, don't we, don't we kind of get that God doesn't love you anymore after that than God loved you with to begin with? Now, I know this is a little bit silly, and it's, it's really bad, and it's just me as a priest talking about it. It's one of those ways, though, I, I wonder about how church can dominate people's lives and whether or not we should be doing that. You you know, does does it make sense, the bridge I'm trying to build there? Yes, sir. Well, I'm along those thoughts. I'm thinking about even medieval times um, when the church seemed to be the center of uh, local society and the, the priest had a tremendous amount of power. Yeah. Yeah. It's, to being a these are really, really great questions, and so actually, what John said is really helpful to think about in medieval Europe. Particularly, the priesthood is what you sent your second-born son into because your first-born was going to be a politician, right? So Henry VIII had a fine theological education because his older brother Arthur was to be the king, right? Henry VIII was a well-trained theologian. Uh, when he did the Reformation. And actually, he really didn't want to do the Reformation. He just wanted to get a divorce, right? I mean, that's sort of the deal. Um, so, so there you go. Um, so, so two questions here is, why did the priest face, and this is important to know, and actually this has a lot to do, I think, with, with Jesus and Sadducees and Pharisees, right? We haven't really, as a Christian church, we didn't call the thing an altar for a long time. We called it the Lord's table, Because the Lord's Table was where people gathered for a common meal to be enriched and nourished for their journey on the way. I am the way, the truth, the life, right? When did we start calling an altar? Well, really a bit after Constantine, we decided what was happening on the Lord's Table is we were sacrificing Jesus again. And actually, that is like a thousand years after Jesus. You don't really find that until you get to the writings of Anselm of Canterbury. Um, who thought that God is the ultimate judge. So God has to always keep the scales totally balanced. And, and he thought, oddly enough, I mean, this is strange lawyering to me. Um, he thought the remedy for a sin was eternal hell, right? And, and so in order, there had to be some appeasement and somebody had to pay the price Someone had to receive the punishment for sin. And, and, and it wasn't really for a long time after Jesus that people started understanding Jesus' sin as receiving our punishment. That's not an original understanding in Christianity. It's very late. For some of us, we think, well, isn't that what it means? That's what I grew up hearing that it means. But that's not what it meant. And, and as we read this book, that's not what it's going to have to mean. It, you know, it's not what it's going to have to mean. So why did people face the altar instead of the people because like the Sadducees, their religious life was about doing this thing between the priest and God. And really the people didn't even much matter. You know, there's still plenty of places today where you go to the Eucharist and you get the bread. The only one who gets the wine is the priest because the priest is the vicar of Christ on earth. I mean, that's who the Pope is and the priest represents the Pope. I mean, religious people are better than non-religious people. That goes to thinking. And, And that's right there (laughs) does that make sense what i'm saying Uh, you go to trinity church in galveston and it's a beautiful church right it's like 100 years old and you'll see that the lord's table is about 12 inches away from the wall Uh, it used to be on the wall right and and they've recently moved it but they didn't build the chancel very big you know it's up on steps right and in the original construction, the priest was always going to be praying at the ombre. That's the arch above the altar. Um, but since that new prayer book, that 40-year-old new prayer book, since then, we've decided the priest should face the people. So they had to pull the altar out, but there wasn't a lot of room. So I've been in places where you, you sort of, you have to go, Eep. <laughs> <sighs> You're sort of like, your, your belly's on the table. <laughs> yeah, but that's really it. And part of it just has to do with what we think religiously. Do we think that this is a meal of nourishments on the way, or do we think this is Christ's suffering because we were bad sinners and somebody has to suffer? So again, that's complicit in the domination system because... If it's about, I mean, in some ways, that's dominating, because if you think about it, you've got to have that Eucharist, and if you can't have it, you're going to hell. Then, then that really reframes things, you know. It really reframes major decisions about what you'll put up with. Uh, the other question you asked is about the Bible, and honestly, there was this decision, frankly, that most people didn't have enough context to really understand the Bible, and in some ways, that's borne out right? You, you look, I mean this is a conversation I had with my wife yesterday about knowing stuff, right? We went to seminary and we learned which resources were trustworthy in general. So sometimes I look at Wikipedia but I know, I know enough to know whether Wikipedia is lying to me or not. Does, does that make sense? But if you didn't know that and you looked at Wikipedia or you looked at, at some blog spot or, 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 or you read some sermon by somebody else, you might hook like and line and sinker, or think like, oh yeah that's exactly right and it's totally wrong makes complete nonsense. And the Catholic Church was wise and understood that without context, people weren't going to do great with the Bible. The sad thing is they weren't doing great with it either because most priests were illiterate. (laughs) And there were some things happening with interpretation where you didn't have competing schools of thought. And you know what happens when you don't have a center or, or an opposition is you get real crazy real fast because there's no one to pull you back to the center. Right? That's one of the interesting things about Judaism is in, entrenched in rabbinic Judaism is a counterpoint. You never hear one Jewish position without hearing another one. Oh, that's an interesting way to think about it, Right, Again, people go to study the Torah knowing, intending to disagree with each other and come back the following week. But think about what's happened since the Reformation since the Reformation, if you disagree, you better find somewhere else to go to church, because God can't handle us disagreeing about a single point, right? Which, which this is a story I told before in Lake Lanier, Georgia. That's the the source for the water in Atlanta. what well, it was. It depends how the water table's doing. Um, but within a mile, Lake Lanier is tiny. You know, you, you you're thinking of, of, um, High Texas. Anybody know where High Texas is? I think a population 154. Anyway, there's three churches within about a mile and a half. There's Hope Baptist Church, and then there's New Hope Baptist Church, and then there's Real Hope Baptist Church. <laughs> yep, needed all three of those. So, um, and, 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 and likely they just agreed about one thing, and that's enough, right? And, and, and I think there is some wisdom to that, right? Because what happened for a lot, of, a lot of Protestant denominations in the Reformation, is we decided that the Bible was the word of God, which is wrong. Jesus is the word of God. I mean, this is, this is really good thinking. The Bible is not the word of God. It's words about God. Jesus is the word of God, right? But when you say the Bible is the word of God, heaven and hell are at stake, so you better be right about it. And if someone's wrong and they're not willing to change their mind, get rid of them because they may make you backslide into hell. I'm I just honestly, and I have compassion for that system because I grew up in it, you know, I just, it's misguided. And it's not even based on the same Bible that I was taught to worship like it was God. Because according to John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's not the Bible. The Bible never became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. And this is a great thing that I might have mentioned on Christmas if you were here. This is a gift. right? If you're ever not sure do I follow this prescription of the Bible or not, the criterion is is it the resurrected Jesus? That's who you follow. You don't follow the Bible. You follow the resurrected You don't even follow the historical Jesus. Don't follow that guy. He died, by the way. You follow the risen one. There you go. <laughs> so um, In some ways, we're getting some prefiguration of the risen Christ here. This becomes really, really important, you know. And and as an Episcopal church, what I like is that we disagree, and and it's important that we disagree about things because truly, the world is not a black and white place, right, I mean, you know, you, you think about the separation between church and state, and in some ways, right, that's a high aim, and in other ways, there's times where the state supporting the church is actually a good, is a good thing right? It's not like it's just either or. That either or thinking works great when we're about four years old, but we're adults, right? And we realize that there's, there's gradations in there. And, and not only are there gradations, there's times when strategy A is helpful, uh, but not forever. A needs to turn into B, you know? There's times when indoctrinating people is really important, because if people can't add or subtract, they don't know how to do anything else. But we're so scared, scared about indoctrinating people. You know, we don't want to indoctrinate our three-year-olds. We want to give them choices. They don't know anything. How can they have any choices? You, you, You know what I mean, right? You've got to tell them some knowledge. And the same thing with knowledge of the church and of the Bible and of God, right? The question is just, what are we telling them, right? Are we telling them in our indoctrination that we're allowed to have questions, that we're allowed to disagree? You can indoctrinate people to disagree. You can you can make that safe. You can model it. You can tell people the story and ask what do you think about that story. That's actually pedagogically all right, you know? Um, and, 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 and this, I think, is part of the journey here. Here's Jesus growing up in a religion that's got a lot going for it, but he's saying not everything's great, right? And, and, our, and, our, go- and our job is to return every year on Palm Sunday and say in what ways can we be counter-processional to something that's dominating our world, right? Okay, I'll s- I won't see you next week, I won't, because I'll be walking in these steps. This is exciting. Um, but Josh is going to guide you next week in chapter 2. That's Monday. Okay? And the week after, that would be the 19th, will be Tuesday. When we come back, and I'll put this in the, in the business from the pilgrimage, we'll do four and five together. That's Wednesday and Thursday. Friday, you'll stand alone. And then we'll do Saturday and Easter Sunday together as well so that we can wrap up in time for Palm Sunday, okay, for the real one. Is that okay? Hey, thanks for being here and practicing your penance. And, um, yeah, really appreciate it.